reading, and then we'll turn to the Gospel of Matthew. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, we see in today's passage in Matthew, the first time that Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. And much of the context for that comes from here in, in Daniel. So Daniel 7, just two verses, verses 13 and 14. This is God's holy word. Let us give our attention to its reading as it's read in the presence of his people. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Amen. And then if you would go to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8, for our sermon text. Matthew, chapter 8. Verses 18 through 22. Matthew 8, verses 18 through 22. Once again, God's holy word. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me, and leave the dead to bury their own dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us bow once more in prayer. Father, we come before your word with great humility, reverence, uh, knowing that our minds are incapable of, of fully grasping who you are. Nevertheless, we know that we can truly know you and serve you and love you. Thus, we ask, O oh Father, that you would grant your spirit to bring this scripture uh, alive to our minds and hearts, that it would take root and bear fruit, all for your glory and honor. So teach us, shape us, form us, make us into all that you would will for us. In Christ's name, amen. As we said a couple of weeks ago, the Sermon on the Mount sort of becomes the Sermon on the Move in Matthew chapter 8. You have all of these miracles piled on top of one another. The one who speaks and teaches with authority is the one who works and acts and heals with authority. So we ask, why is this, uh, are these conversations on discipleship right in the middle of this, this great litany of, of miracles in chapters 8 and 9 of, of the Gospel of Matthew? 
And we see, really, that there becomes a deep connection between the followers of Jesus, the disciples whom he calls, and the healing and the blessedness that he gives. Jesus teaches us in his ministry that that ultimately the healing and the salvation and the blessedness that he gives is enjoyed by those who join themselves to him for those who claim Christ as their own. And there's then a a deep connection even to the Lord's table as we prepare our hearts to, to celebrate communion, to celebrate the Lord's Supper. For whom is the table of the Lord? It's for those who claim Christ as their own. For those who say that it is their desire to love and serve and follow him in holiness all of of their days. So the arrangement here in in Matthew, these conversations that Jesus has with these disciples or would-be disciples, it, it makes perfect sense. Jesus performing all of these miracles, putting this great power on display, and, and people might say, how do I make that my own, that healing and salvation and, and blessedness? And here you have part of the answer. He gives that blessedness to his followers. You need to make sure, we all need to make sure that we don't get the order of this reversed, though. We don't prove ourselves to be followers, and then Jesus gives us his healing and his blessedness. He heals us. He gives us salvation as he calls us to himself, and he makes us as ones who desire to live for him in self-denial and surrender and being satisfied in him. But we do see the cost of discipleship, and, and Jesus wants us to know of the cost of discipleship. And so we'll consider together that those things, self-denial and surrender and satisfaction. Self-denial, surrender, and and satisfaction. First, self-denial. We see there's a large crowd that that is around Jesus. Why is that? Well, certainly some are there because they, they want to see that power, that healing power that is on display. Perhaps they've come for, for healing themselves, or uh, they're just really in awe of all the things that Jesus is doing. So we're not exactly sure why, but Jesus says, let us now go to the other side. The other side here would mean the other side of the the Sea of Galilee, which is really like a a large lake. It's about 10 miles, or, or its width is under 10 miles. And so Jesus puts this, in a sense, a barrier in in front of all of those who are gathered around him. If there are any who want to still remain with him, what do they have to do? They have to go with him across the Sea of of, of Galilee. On the other side of the Sea of Galilee, as we'll see later in chapter 8, there are Gentile towns with with Gentile problems. There are those who are possessed by demons. Remember, Jesus will cast the demons into a, a herd of pigs, A herd of swine is something that you would never see in Israelite territory, a a totally unclean animal. Gentile towns with Gentile problems. Jesus has placed this this barrier, in a sense, to to whittle down the crowd. And it sets the stage for these short conversations that Jesus has about discipleship. And, And that's the way that we are meant to take them. They are questions about discipleship and the cost of of following Jesus. And that is how they are to be applied to ourselves and to our hearts. So the first person that approaches Jesus is a scribe. He addresses Jesus as as teacher. 
This is not a, a negative way to address Jesus. A, a scribe would have had a, a very high view of teaching, they had a very academic kind of life. And so for him to call Jesus teacher, it, it's not negative at all, but we, in a sense, we can't help but compare and contrast that, right, to what the Roman centurion says to Jesus, who calls him Lord and who shows an, an, an absolute devotion and trust in Jesus from the start. So if this scribe wants to truly become, in, in the fullest sense, a disciple of Jesus, he must move from calling Jesus teacher to calling him Lord. And Jesus gets just to that very issue. So the man says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. No matter where you go, I will follow you. I want to remain with you. It sounds impressive, but Jesus needs to put it to the test, doesn't he? He weighs this scribe's heart. And the question, essentially, that he confronts him with is, do you believe that your being with me is going to redound to your earthly benefit? Or do you believe that you want to follow me no matter what and no matter the cost? There, it's uh, one of the ways that, that people can sometimes, a very select few, can get out of an impoverished background is through the sport of, of, of boxing. Boxing amateurs come from uh, oftentimes rough neighborhoods, impoverished backgrounds, and it can be a, a way out of the streets for the very most talented and the smallest fraction of those who are involved in the sport. But when a young man is seen as immensely talented and perhaps has what it takes to, to uh, attain for himself life-changing wealth and fame and riches, what happens? Everyone starts to kind of attach themselves to him. Someone wants to be his coach. Someone wants to be his manager. People uh, kind of just want to hang on him no matter the cost. They'll say, I will pay a price now because there may be a huge payout for me later. You would see, and probably most people who, who do this, that there's a selfish impulse there, isn't it? I am willing to pay a price now because it may mean an immense payout for me later. Jesus weighs the heart of the scribe to see if this is something like what's going on inside of his heart. And so Jesus tells him, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus is saying, if your instinct to follow me is at all mixed with this selfish impulse, if you think that one day I may be famous or powerful or rich, if you think that there is some earthly power into which I'm going to step and I'm going to share it with those who are closest to me, don't bother following me. Don't bother doing it. Jesus' life and ministry are going to be marked by suffering, by defeat, and according to this world's order, he will go down in shame and humiliation. It will not in any way be a life of comfort. There, there won't be a price to pay now, and then in an earthly sense, it becomes easy street later. So Jesus weighs the heart of this scribe. He points out his suffering as he calls himself the Son of Man, which is, it's interesting. Interesting that he calls himself the Son of Man uh, in this passage. And it's really his favorite title for himself, and there's, a, there's an elasticity to it. it. It highlights a lot of different things. On the one hand, when Jesus says he is the Son of Man, it highlights his humiliation. We read it through the lens of his divinity, and the one who made himself man. 
We see his humiliation. In another sense, as we see in Daniel 7, the Son of Man is kind of the one who rises to this prominent role above all of the human race, and he uh, is given dominion and power and authority. He is served by people, so it highlights his exaltation as well. Humiliation, exaltation. It highlights both his humanity and his divinity. It highlights his suffering and yet his victory over death and the curse. It highlights his unique nature as one who is unlike those around him, and yet it highlights his place as a representative for his people. Can't unpack all of those today, but Jesus highlights for us here his suffering as the second Adam. He is the one who, as the Son of God, experiences less comfort in the world than that which a fox or a bird would have. Foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That's, in a sense, a turning upside down of the animal kingdom. Do you see that? Everything is sort of turned on its head. And that reminds us it's an allusion to Eden. It's an allusion to the garden. Adam was given dominion over the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the fish of the sea to exercise that dominion. But the one who comes as the second Adam to right and to regain what has been lost in the Garden of Eden. He is the one who suffers in a particular and a peculiar way. And in order for him to do that, what what do we see that marks his ministry? Utter self-denial. Remarkable self-denial. That's what Jesus shows to us. Remarkable self-denial. In Daniel 7, the Son of Man receives glory and blessedness and dominion and a kingdom. How does he come into possession of those things, though, as we make our way through the Gospels? Through force? No. Through meekness. Through humility. We see that the very one who creates the world, who created the world, is the one who is rejected by the very world that he created. From now on till the time he ascends to heaven, he will experience rejection. Nazareth, his own town, rejects him. Later on in chapter 8, as he goes to the region of the Gadarenes, they beg him to leave. Please go away from us. Pilate will fail to defend him. Jerusalem will call for his crucifixion. Heaven itself will forsake him as he hangs on the cross. So if there's an ounce of selfish ambition in the desire to follow Jesus, Jesus says, don't bother. We see how those words function for this man. How how about for us? We know that attaching yourself to Jesus doesn't gain you power or prominence or notoriety in this world. It's not a way to riches. We know that. But one question that that, that may pierce more deeply for us is, if self-denial is fundamental to following Jesus, why would we do it? Why would we do it? And the answer for that is found simply in looking at Jesus with the eyes of faith. Who he is and what he has done. The eternal Son of God who takes on flesh to reconcile us to God and to see the love of God put on display in the life of Jesus. Thomas Goodwin says that Jesus Christ is 
the love of God covered over in flesh. And if we look upon Jesus with the eyes of faith, understanding who he is, the eternal son of God, and what he has done, he lays down his life for sinners. When we see the value that he gives to us in his salvation, we're confronted with a question, not only how, how do we not trust in him for his saving benefits, but how do we not give ourselves to him in a way that mirrors his self-denial on behalf of sinners. This is the very issue that is at work in the scriptures, the glory of the eternal Christ, the one who laid down his life for sinners. Do you look upon Jesus with the eyes of faith? Or do you look upon Jesus with the eyes of the world? That would say his life ended in shame and humiliation. That's the question. And if we look upon Jesus with the eyes of faith, seeing truly who he is and what he has done, does self-denial, is, is self-denial going to be an issue for us? No. No. To the heart of one who looks upon Jesus with the eyes of faith, self-denial flows naturally from the heart that loves and treasures the Savior. Because we see the glory and the beauty and the inestimable wonder of Christ. As we think about that for our own lives then, too, how would we expect anything different than what our Savior endured? Surely our suffering is not efficacious like Christ's suffering. It's not the exact same thing. But should we not expect suffering nonetheless? As his people, should we not expect suffering nonetheless? Now, the wonder and the, the, the overflowing wonder of God's grace towards us is that very often our life is not marked by any kind of hardship that, would, that, that you could term in a, in a transcendent sense as suffering. But certainly we do all suffer in particular ways, don't we? And if we look at the self-denial of Christ, the willing suffering of Christ as his people who give ourselves to him, should we not expect suffering as well? It's more of a question of, of what we expect. And, and when we are met with trial and hardship in whatever form, whatever sense, what becomes our reaction? Do we say God has forgotten who he is? Or do we say, no, he is teaching me obedience through suffering. He is teaching me love and devotion through suffering. John Bradford says this, Why art thou afraid to carry Christ's cross? Wilt thou come into his kingdom and not drink of his cup? This brings us then to our second movement this morning, surrender. We find this in the last two verses. Another disciple, perhaps in a loose sense of the word, this is not a, a, a disciple who is fully bought in the way that maybe Peter or the others are, but a disciple. He says, Lord, let me go and bury my father. Jesus answers and says, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. What do we make of this? A curious saying by Jesus, isn't it? Taken on its face, it sounds jarring. It sounds perhaps inconsiderate. It sounds, frankly, antisocial if we take this command in the strictest literal sense and apply it to ourselves today. Is Jesus saying that because of who he is, he has rendered grief and 
family connections and family responsibilities, funerals and burials, meaningless and even something that you should not participate in. If you are a serious Christian, you don't, uh, a serious follower of Jesus, you, you don't worry about funerals, burials, family connections, responsibilities. Are we to be cold, uncaring, unloving people towards everyone else and have absolutely everything that we ever think about sort of centered around this idea of following Jesus? Is that what he's teaching? Commentators make suggestions for how to take this. As you can imagine, miles of ink have been spilled on this. Some say, well, perhaps this man's father was not dead yet, and perhaps it was going to happen sometime into the future. It was, it was still a long ways off. And so this man is, is asking Jesus for sort of an, an open-ended amount of time. Give me time to kind of go take care of everything that I need to take care of relative to my father, settle all his accounts, get all of that tied up, and then I will come follow you. And you see how the lesson would come forth from that, right? If Jesus, if following him is so far down your priority list, you're saying, well, I'm going to do this and this and this and this, and then I'm going to serve you, then that shows a deficiency in the heart of this man. You think in the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, serve your creator in the days of your youth, when there is still joy and strength and energy in your days. Use the joy and the strength and the energy of youth to serve God, something akin to like what we would find here. And that, that's per, perhaps that's a reasonable way of taking it. One thing that I think about, it, it's, if that is what Jesus is really meaning to say here, it, it kind of <clears throat> lessens lessens some of the force of Jesus' words, doesn't it? It makes his call rather something reasonable. Well, of course, Jesus would not accept that this man would say, well, I have kind of several years of responsibilities to take care of, and then I'm going to, to, to follow you. What seems more likely is that this man's father is actually dead, or his death is immediately imminent. And, and what it brings to the fore is this issue of what kind of priority does Jesus take in our lives? That's really what's going on. It's, Jesus is not disparaging the process of grief or death or burial. He's not saying that, that we cannot participate in those things as Christians. It is the issue of what takes priority. In this instance, when a, a parent dies in Jewish life in that day, it triggered a whole host of responsibilities, things that one would be expected to take care of that exempted you from Jewish religious life. You kind of, it was like a doctor's note that exempted you from all of these things that you were supposed to do in the Jewish system of religious observance because you are addressing this thing that becomes of primary importance in your life, burying your parent or taking care of all of those things, making sure everything is tied up nicely. It took priority. It's like a doctor's note from observing the rest of Jewish religious life. And so when you consider it in that light, it makes a lot of sense why this question was posed to Jesus and why Matthew records it for us under the inspiration of the Spirit and brings it to us. Because the question is, do the demands of Christ fit within that already existing structure of Jewish religious life? Or is his authority something so unique and so new and so different that it transcends all of those things. 
Does anything exempt us from following Jesus, in other words? That's really the question. There are many things that are important in in Jewish religious life in that day that God had given to his people, his covenant people. And yet, a death in the family triggers all of these responsibilities, kind of puts everything else on hold and, and on pause. Also consider, in order for this man to go and bury his father, what did he have to do? He had to leave Jesus. And at this point in the ministry and the life of Jesus Christ, having not ascended on high, having not sent his resurrection power and presence by the power of the Spirit to his people, to believing people throughout the world, there's there's fundamental differences in the ministry of Jesus then and the ministry of Jesus now. So what Jesus is teaching us is that that which would have exempted you from religious life for a time in the past is not a valid excuse to ignore my summons and my call. It's really not about death, grief, burial. It's the fact that nothing exempts us from following Jesus, the call to follow him. When Jesus calls someone, it is unequivocal. It's unequaled. There are no exceptions. That's what this exchange shows us. It shows us that Christ is Lord, and those who would have him must surrender absolutely to him. Is that your view of Jesus today? Those who would have him must surrender absolutely to him. Or are there doctor's notes in the way that you think about following Jesus? Are there exceptions? Are there areas of your life that don't come under his lordship? Are there corners of your heart that have not been given to the lordship and the glory of Christ? You must surrender all to Christ. Christ will accept no equals. He will abide no competitors on the throne of your heart. And if you see him again with the eyes of faith, the one who is the God-man, the Lord and creator of all, the one for whom and by whom all things were made, can you really justify not surrendering some aspect of yourself when you see his loving and faithful sacrifice for you? For us, it's really not a question of going to the other side of the lake, is it? That's what's... That's what's beautiful about this for us today. It doesn't become this this thing of the circumstances of our life and say, okay, well, I need to follow Jesus so I can't go to this place, I can't go to this thing, I can't attend to this responsibility. Jesus comes with us. He, He abides in our hearts by faith. And so for us who have desired to follow him, what is placed before us today is is the challenge, the call to say, wherever you go and whatever you do, don't allow the circumstances of your life to take away, to chip away from your surrender to Jesus. Don't allow competitors to enter into your heart. No matter what you are doing, Christ must be surrendered to in all things. So as you deny yourself, surrender to him. Will Christ be Lord of your life in all circumstances and against all challengers? No matter what happens in your life, do you submit to his holy and sovereign and loving will for you? Hymn writer puts it this way, whate'er my God ordains is right. His holy will abideth. I will be still whate'er he doth and follow where he guideth. He is my God, though dark my road. 
He holds me that I shall not fall. Wherefore to him I leave it all. Whate'er my God ordains is right, here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet am I not forsaken. My Father's care is round me there. He holds me that I shall not fall. And so to him I leave it all. A surrendered heart in all circumstances and against all challengers. What exempts you from the call to follow Jesus? Nothing. What exempts you from the call to love and treasure him? Nothing. For he is Lord of all, Lord of all. And when we do that, when we come to him, we deny ourselves, we surrender to him, we find and see that he is our, our highest good. We don't have much time to dwell on this uh, today. But Alfred Edersheim points out that the call of discipleship is that we must be so satisfied in Christ that there would be no trial like unto leaving him and no sorrow like losing him. Again, go back to that, that second disciple. What did he have to do to go and bury his father? He had to leave Jesus. But what it comes to us to say, what will it take for us to leave him? Nothing. Nothing in this world can make us want to leave Jesus, to leave his side. For there would be no, no trial like leaving him and no sorrow like losing him. So we give thanks that he's with us always. He dwells in our hearts by faith, and thus we can take his treasured and his loving presence with us at all times and in all places. There he is, comforting us at the funerals of loved ones. There he is, beside us in the greatest trials of life. There he is when life hits rock bottom. Love him, treasure him, surrender to him. Let him be your Lord in all things. And always hear his call to follow him at all costs, seeing with the eyes of faith who he is and what he has done for sinners. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for your love and grace and mercy shown to us in Jesus Christ. As we come around the table now, O oh Father, uh, bless our observance. May you be honored and glorified by all that we do. In Christ's name, amen. If you would take your